0: Let's uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're actually going to look at this passage, not just memorize it, but see what it means. I was telling, uh, we gather for prayer here at 9.30 every morning, and I was telling the people who, who, who are here to pray, this passage is so beautiful and so succinct and so wonderful. I, I'm almost tempted to read it and to just stop, because um, I don't want to mess it up. This is considered to be the core part of the letter of Philippians. It's what everything else is built on. And scholars even describe this as one of the most beautiful and succinct and poetic and artistic moments of Paul. This is like the golden, uh, this is like a golden moment for Paul. Like he just, in that moment, everything he says in the scriptures is inspired by God, but it was like he was super inspired right now. Because he just basically explains the story and gospel of Jesus in a few sentences so beautifully. Um, And I just want to pray right now. Lord, please help me from uh, messing up the beauty of this passage to your church. I pray that its beauty and its power would wash through your church right now. Help me to stay out of the way. Help me to keep from making it just clunky and ridiculous, as I often sometimes do in my humanness. Um, Help me not to complicate the simplicity of the gospel today. Please let it, in all of its sheer power, transform us where we sit and where we stand in Jesus' name. And I'm just going to read 11 verses, and we'll start from there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is God's word. I want, uh, as we're looking at this, to ask one question of the text and of ourselves: What does, what does power, look like, in the kingdom of God? What does power look like in the life of the kingdom? Which, you know, we're not talking about floating on a cloud in the sweet by and by. We're talking about God's kingdom coming and his will be done, done, being done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, we're endeavoring as followers of Christ to live the life of the kingdom here now. So what does power look like for Christians? Last week we spoke about, you know, from chapter 1 verse 27... Um, about living a life worthy of the gospel. And that's where Paul gave us a vision of how life could be. And it's from there that he tells us uh, to strive together. Um, And that's where we got uh, the intention and the means, the effort of moving forward in the Christian life. And I think it seems like in the first couple of verses in chapter 2, what Paul is now doing is, is he's saying, if this is true, then I want you to respond in this way. Look at what he, look at what he says in, in uh, the first couple of verses. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, just right after he told us, which we looked at last week, of a vision of the life of the kingdom. He just said, "I want, if that convinces you, if you're compelled by what you see in Jesus, live that life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now he's saying, hey, if you've been trying to, if you've been living that life, if you've been diving in, and you've been experiencing the benefits of the life of the kingdom, even a little bit, if there's any encouragement that you've experienced, if, if you've had any taste of comfort, if there's been any participation, if you've, if you've endeavored to follow Christ and you're experiencing, wow, this is the good life, even just a little bit, he, he says in verse 2, now I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, he's saying, hey, if you've been tasting the benefits of following Jesus and you see that it actually is the good life, let's just take the plunge together. Is that enough to convince you? To persuade you that Jesus is who he says he is, he's the best person to follow, his life is the best way to live, then let's do this together. He's saying, let's just put the, let's just, just full throttle right now. And what he goes on to say is full throttle sounds like humble service, okay? This is what he's going to this is what he's going to tell us in the next few verses that we just read. If you are convinced that Jesus is the best way to live, let's endeavor together as a church to have the same mind and live in the humble service that we see in him. Now that last line might brist, that, that might cause you to bristle just a little bit. Maybe not what we were expecting. Perhaps we're expecting something a little more outlandish, a little more exciting, a little more authoritarian, a little more full of power, our version of power. The last thing perhaps anyone is expecting when we're talking about the good life is humility and service. Now, if you're a Christian, you've heard a lot about humility and service, so maybe you're you're just doing it because you ought to do it, not because you're convinced that it's the best way to live. So even if you're trying to be humble and you're trying to serve other people, maybe deep down you don't believe it. Maybe you're like, this, <laughs> I'm just doing this because I'm supposed to. Or maybe we adopt humble service and we try to live this way, but we don't have a motivating vision of why it actually is the good kingdom life. We feel obligated, but we don't really want to. And after, and after all, Everything that we see in the world screams an opposite narrative, doesn't it? Whether it's, uh, whether it's the scripts that we see coming out of Hollywood, whether it's the books and the novels that we read, uh, whether it's politics, whether it's our workplace and how people interact in our jobs, uh, whether it's even just in our families, we don't tend to see, at least I, I don't always, we, we don't tend to see humble service being expressed. What we see a lot, I think, is power being expressed through strength and self-asserting, right? That's a, that's a huge narrative. doesn't matter where you're looking. That's just a, that's a popular way of showing power. Not through humility and, and service, but through strength and self assertion. What Paul is doing right here is he's giving us a different way to live. But you're not going to want to live that way unless you're convinced that it's a better way. So I, I'm hoping what he says and the way that I, I explain it is compelling. But here's what he starts with. He starts with a couple things, verse 3 and verse 4. He starts with with two things, humility and, I think, generosity. Right? Humility, verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, here's the generosity. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this different way that Paul is talking about, this different way to live, Looks like humility and generosity. I think there's something deeper, which we're going to look at later, that's, that's fueling those two things. But if you were to just look at Paul's life or Jesus' life, what you see is humility and generosity. In other words, the, the way that you think about yourself, humility, is fueling and forming the way that you behave towards other people, generosity. Generosity. I just want to look at those two things just for a second so we, we know what we're talking about. What is humility? I, I, well, maybe start with a couple different questions. What is humility? Maybe a better way to start is what, what is humility not, okay? A couple things that humility is not. I think this might help us just clarify things. Humility is not pretense, I've noticed in my own life that humility when I'm honest is so hard for me to wrap my my mind around because it screams a different narrative than I'm used to that when I try to do it I I even try to be humble for like the wrong reason right to make people think well of me which is I think the opposite of humility. So I'm like, I will lower myself like Jesus so that people, you know, will, will think that... I, you know, and I wouldn't tell you that. I would never tell you that. <laughs> but I think a lot of my motivation for being humble sometimes is like so that people see how, you know, wonderful and spiritual that I am. And so that I gain influence and maybe people will listen to my ser- sermons more, you know, gain credibility. That's pretense. That's not real humility. Uh, the funniest version of... of uh, pretence is what uh the humble brag which used to be a popular way of calling people out a couple of years ago. You remember that? A humble brag is essentially that. You're trying to be humble but in doing so you're building yourself up. So I'll give you an example. Uh let's say I'm 22 years old. I've, you know, inherited millions of dollars and I don't work and I say to you or I'm, you know, at dinner with my friends and I say, "Gosh, I'm so bored." I have nothing to do. I don't have a job. I just sit around doing nothing. You guys are so lucky that you get to work 16 hours a day. I mean that's just great. No, humble brag. I'm trying to be humble, but I'm actually building myself up. Or, you know, oh my you know, my hummer is just so big and bulky. I have no place to store it. You're so lucky that you have that lemon that's small and you get to park it anywhere. Oh, I have a Tesla. It's so hard to, like, charge it. You know, you're so lucky. There's gas stations everywhere. <laughs> humble brag, okay? So on one end of the spectrum, we, it's hard to, like, we know we're supposed to be humble, but we don't quite know how, so we try to be humble. But deep down, our underlying motivation is to look good. So wrong... No, but that's okay. Jesus will teach us how to do it right. But that's on one end of the spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum is self-deprecation. We're actually not trying to build ourselves up. We're trying to tear ourselves down. So we think, okay, humility is making myself look awful. Uh, So, you know, this might take the form of rejecting a compliment. I'm just throwing stuff out. Like someone's like, hey, dude, the thing that you did the other day was so awesome. I love that project that you built or that thing that you accomplished. And we're like, oh, that, uh, no, it was terrible, you know, well, no, that, it was awesome, like, it benefited the whole, you know, the whole uh, company, and I'm just wanted to express my uh, gratitude for that, no, no, it was awful, I'm, it was terrible, no, I'm really thankful, oh, well, it wasn't me, it was Jesus, you know, well, no, it was actually you that did it, but, oh, praise the Lord, you know, I'm just a wretched sinner saved by grace, you know, so, On one end of the spectrum, wretched sinner syndrome—you know—we don't want to think think anything good of ourselves. And then on this other end, we we think so highly of ourselves that we even uh, use humility to build ourselves up. So it's not either of those those things. Uh, It actually, biblical humility actually has little to do with you at all. It actually has more to do with. uh, I love what what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. To quote him, uh, he says that the essence of, of true humility in the Bible is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Okay, so it actually has less to do with you than you think. And why is this? It's so that you are free to think about other people. Humility actually has more to do with what you think about other people than than the attention that you heap upon yourself. Listen to what Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says. It says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Think, have a right view of yourself. A healthy, balanced view. Don't tear yourself down. Don't puff yourself up. Just have a balanced view of yourself. Uh, humility, we can say in verse 3 uh, in our text, is is when others become more important to us we don't start hating ourselves self-deprecation we don't try to puff ourselves up we actually elevate other people uh and i think this is what paul is saying do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves so that's hard to do right even if we, we get that far, it, don't think about yourself. Let's just try that as a spiritual discipline right now. Stop thinking about yourself. Ready? Go. How are you doing? It's kind of like that old, uh, that old joke, like telling a child, you know, don't think about a pink elephant. And That's all I can think about right now is that pink elephant. We'll learn more about how Jesus' yoke is easy and how we can actually become people who are humble But right now, let's just work with that definition, humility. Others are becoming more important to us. But what Paul is describing is not just a feeling of humility. It it actually spills into uh, generosity, a way of treating others that flows out of that humility that's in us. So now, because we have a right view of ourselves, we see other people as being more important than ourselves. Now we're willing to... Uh, share with them things that were valuable to us. We can give them our time. Uh, we can give them our gifts. We can give them our, our ears. We can listen to them. We can give them our status and position in the workplace. We can give them opportunities that maybe we want. Why? Because they're more significant to us than we are. And so we're now able to let go. This is what Paul says in verse 4. Uh, we're now considering the interests of others more than ourselves, right? So in a word, if you were to take these two things, humility and generosity, and put them together, you just have self-sacrificial giving. Self-sacrificial giving, or, or self-denial, as Jesus always terms it. That simple thing that keeps showing up in the New Testament that everybody hates to talk about. Uh, this is what Paul is saying is the different way. And this is what seems like anything self-sacrificial, anything that has to do with self-denial... It seems like an anathema in our culture today. It's, it seems not like a strength. it seems like a weakness. Uh, like if you exhibit that, you are a weak person. That's the narrative of our culture, uh, whether it's in some of those pla- you know in, in politics, in workplaces, uh, in the ways that we express ourselves, for example, in protests, uh, in cultural expressions of Christianity. Even in the way that we are, uh, when you turn on the TV and see anything that's Christian, do you see self-denial? Just ask yourself that question of any of these things, uh, or even just the general vibe in the city of Santa Barbara. I was, uh, our staff works at a place downtown called The Work Zones. It's like a shared meeting space where we bump shoulders with like other business people and entrepreneurs. I'm in this space, and uh, last week I was talking to a couple friends. They know what I do, but they're not believers, um, but they're just fun to talk to. And they're like, they got on this conversation where they're like, it's so frustrating that we can't have a conversation with people unless we agree on the same thing. And this is coming from my buddy, uh, who's... uh, very intellectual person. He's actually, a, he was raised Jewish and is from New York, but he, he doesn't ascribe to the faith, so he's secular. Um, and he's just very like, he loves arguing, right? But he's just laughing and like drinking coffee and like patting you on the back as he does it. And he was, he, he brought this up he was like, I don't understand. Like, in New York, we do this all the time, you know? And it's, like, we argue about stuff. We disagree on things. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. But over here in the, on the West Coast, no, like, it's like people have to agree. Like, if you don't agree with somebody, it's like you hate them. But I don't hate you. I'm just having a conversation. And then he looked at me, and he said something that just, like, hit me right here. And, he's all, and of all the places on the West Coast, he's been all over the place, so Santa Barbara is the worst. And he's moving, by the way. <laughs> but he's, but he's, he was saying it from like, why? Like, Can we disagree on things and, and, and have a robust conversation? Like, doesn't mean I hate you. And I just started to examine that. And, and even in my own conversations where I do that type of thing, I'm, I'm lacking in that self-denial that makes even a simple basic conversation between two people work. Like no matter where you look, the lack of self-denial is is not only missing, it's considered anathema. Like we don't, that's that's a sign of weakness. And yet Paul elsewhere calls it love. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Speaking of good passages to memorize. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way, it's not irritable, it keeps no record of being wronged, it does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out, love never gives up, it never loses faith, it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. This is a a longer picture of what he's saying very simply in Philippians. The way of self-denial is love. Love and self-denial are part and parcel. It's this other-centered way of doing things. Dallas Willard uh, put love so succinctly. He basically said, to love is to will the good of the other. It's to will the good of another. I would add, even to that, even when it's at your own expense and without any promise of uh, reciprocation. You've just gotten to this place where you care so much about the other person without regard for reciprocity that you just want them to be blessed. You want good things to happen for them. Love, humility, generosity coming together. And this is the path. This self-sacrificial love is what Paul is telling us is the alternative to the way that the world often works. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, in, in 1 Corinthians, right before that passage we just read, if you don't have love, you're nothing and you have nothing. You're a loud, you know, noisy gong and you've got nothing else to like, you are nothing and you have nothing if you have no love. In other words, he's saying, hey, he's not just talking about love here, he's talking about what true power and influence is in the kingdom life. If you have no love, you have no power and no influence. No true power and influence. What is true power? True power in the kingdom of God seems to look like love, demonstrated most fully in acts of selfless giving. If you don't believe that, just try small ways of doing it and see what happens. I love this passage in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Just this week, try it in a small way. Like, don't wait until like big, crazy, you know, conflict. But in small ways, like an argument or a disagreement. And just try this. Self-denial. Put your opinion, put your entitlement on the shelf just once and say something crazy like, you know, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> or if, you, if that person is, is visibly angry or hurt or irritated, like, oh yeah, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. You know, something like that. Or, gosh, that makes sense. Like, I'm, I'm understanding, you know. And see what happens to that other person. You want to witness real power? Watch an angry, wrathful person start to be made gentle by the words coming out of your mouth. Jesus has been telling us this since day one. True power. In fact, the supreme example of true power and love Paul gives us is Jesus himself. And this is where it gets pretty good. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, what he's saying here is that Jesus existed in the form of God since the beginning. He's the uncreated one. He is God. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that uh, Jesus, the Word, was with God and the Word was God. And uh, uh, the Word is God. So Jesus, when we speak of Jesus, we're speaking of God in the flesh. Well, Paul right here is saying, hey, before he was even born of the Virgin Mary, he already existed as the Son of God. He is the uncreated, uh, uh, all-powerful, uncreated one. He, he He is God. And so this is where he starts. This is this is the one who existed in the form of God. And yet look at where he goes. If we had that type of power, how would we use it for our own benefit? And yet the the most powerful person in the universe, it says he doesn't use it as a thing to be grasped to please himself but he empties himself of this privilege. Now, it doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means he took all of his power and authority and privilege, he shelved it in order to become a person that was lower than him. He became one of us. How did Jesus use all of his manifest power? He used it to become a human being. And he was born in the likeness of men in verse 7. Now, even in that state, he could have used all of his divine power to kind of assert himself and show just how, how awesome he is. Instead, he becomes humble, even to the point of dying for our sins. And yet, his death was not the last part of the story. It says in verse 9 through 11 that God, through that selfless act of love, highly exalted Jesus... Uh, resurrected him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, gave him the name above every name, that at that name every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. It was through this act of selfless love that Jesus actually gets all the power. See how counterintuitive this is? It's not how the world works, is it? But in the, in the economy of God's kingdom, it's through humble, selfless serving that God exalts us. Not quite the same as a humble brag. I believe it's said in the Proverbs or in the Psalms, don't praise yourself, but let somebody else do it for you. God decides to bless his people through, this, through these acts of selfless love. This is true power. Jesus does what none of us could do by ourselves. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4 It says that what the law was powerless to do because of our sinful flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of our flesh, in a body, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus did what we were unable to do so that we could do what we were unable to do in him. This is the gospel story. This passage reminds us about the core of Christianity, that Jesus lowered himself out of sheer love, to reach people who could not reach him and was consequently exalted to the highest place of authority in the universe. That's why we're memorizing this passage together. The passage that, would hold, that holds the entire book of Philippians together, that holds the entire church together, can hold you together too. And I wonder what would happen if we started to ingest these seven verses and this script for our life. I guess we'll find out. But the gospel is the good news. What Paul is saying in such a succinct way is this is the good news that anyone can live under the loving rule of God. And the loving rule of God, when embraced, changes everything about you. That love, that power, is available to you and me in Jesus Christ. I want you to go through that list in your mind again what love is. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It doesn't remember wrong things that were done. Just go through that list in your mind and ask yourself, can you do those things? Some of us might stop at the first word. Like, love is patient. Oh, I'm done. <laughs> you know, you might read stuff like that. Or, you know, things like the Sermon on the Mount and say, Who can do this? Who can live this way? Only Jesus can. And maybe even leave it at that. But the gospel isn't just that Jesus died. It's that he rose from the dead to bring new life. It's that he is now seated in the highest place of authority, spreading his rule and reign to people that want to follow him. The gospel is not just good news because it means we're forgiven. It's good news because it means that Jesus can make us like him by the power of the Spirit that dwells inside of us. It means we too can love like Jesus loved. And we don't have to love the way that we've been trying to love. Like, I hate this person (laughs) so much, but I'm going to pretend like I love them because the Bible tells me that I'm supposed to be loving. No, the, the Bible says you can actually love people that you normally would hate. You can actually experience freedom that way. You don't have to try to take on external behaviors and conform what you really want to do to those external behaviors. God can change you from the inside out. You can be free from things that used to entangle you. You can be free from hatred. You can be free from resentment. You can get free from uh, greed and lust and strife and bitterness and unforgiveness. You can get free from all of those things in order to taste deeply the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You can experience love and actually love other people this way. Really, not hypocritically. In fact... That seems to be the whole plan of this whole Jesus thing. To make people who love like Jesus and are loved by Jesus. Let me share with you some passages about spiritual transformation. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. The hard things that go our way, areas where we have to experience self-denial. We can get to a point where we're rejoicing Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. This is a, the, a quintessential passage about change and transformation in the Christian life. Notice that there's nothing in this passage about, about actions. Do this. It's about ways of being, hope, character. The character is uh, being able to do something in the moment that you need to do it automatically, without even thinking. Endurance isn't an action; it's it's something within you that is is pushing you forward hope isn't an action it's a way of being it's something that you have and notice that all of these inward characteristics lead to one thing love that is the trajectory of the christian life okay you don't believe me I'll, i'll keep reading some more here's another one second peter chapter one verse five through seven for this very reason make every effort there's that word by the way try hard Work really hard at this. I thought Christianity was just passive. Nope, try hard. Of course, by the Spirit and through grace, but make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. Notice again, no act no this isn't behavior modification. There's no actions here. These are characteristics and ways of being. One spills out of the other. And where do they all lead? In brotherly affection, with love. Okay, here's one more. You're not persuaded, I know. I see it in the glaze in your eye. First John chapter 4, verse 16 through 17. God is love. Paul prayed, I pray that I would be, you would be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that look like? God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Here's how we know that we're being made complete. In this world, we are like Jesus. See that first phrase? In this world. Not later, when the harps and the clouds come. God is in the business of changing us now. And what it looks like is more love, which is a humble generosity. Love just isn't just available to you in the kingdom. It's what following Jesus looks like and means. Now, some of you might say, well, listen, if I do First Corinthians 13, I'm patient and I'm kind and I'm humble and I don't consider, I don't remember wrongs done, people will walk all over me. People will take advantage because this is a cutthroat world. This is not what people do. So if I do it, they'll take advantage of me. Are you sure? What if you didn't return a retort for a retort? What if instead of, of angry words, you, you returned angry words with gentle a gentle spirit and kindness? That might change everything. people might start asking what's your problem? Why are you treating me this way? Why don't you get mad? Why are you so, you never get irritated? Like this is such a crazy anxious time in our company right now. Why don't you ever get irritated? And why are you so kind when people are so mean to you? They might start asking you those questions. And then you could say, well, Jesus taught me how. I love Jesus. Now, of course, there might be a couple people who do walk all over you as a result. Whatever. That happened to Jesus too. Jesus loved the world harder than love has ever been shown, and they killed him for it. But he didn't stay dead. The Father exalted him to the right hand, to the highest place of authority. And that is the blessing of the kingdom. If you lose your life for his sake, you will find it more deeply than you have ever known it. You'll win in the deepest sense of the word imaginable. You might suffer a little bit along the way, but in the end, and I dare say in the process, you'll experience a blessed life. But you can't give to people what you don't already have. Amen. And I think for all of us in this place, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you're not a, you, you don't follow Christ now and you're just kind of testing this thing out the place we all have to start, and even if we've started there, we've got to just keep coming back to, is receiving the love of the Father for ourselves. You can't love other people unless you deeply experience the love of God towards you. And that, my brothers and sisters, is also available to us in Jesus Christ. I want to end by looking at Paul's uh, fifth line in verse five. He says, take this attitude, this mind among yourselves, right? He just told us to be humble and to serve others and to take that attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look at that line, which was yours in Christ Jesus. This is where I want to end. There is nothing that you can do no amount of change or transformation that you can bring to your own life that first did not come from you in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty of this whole Christian walk, man. We're not trying to do things out of our own power. We're, we're working hard at it, but we're working hard because Christ is in us working those things out. I love the verse that will come up later. Uh, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to uh, will and to work for his good pleasure. We're working because Christ is in us working and we're in Christ. We're not doing this alone. And Paul is grounding everything about our behavior and manner of being in the truth that Christ dwells in us. If you are a, a follower of Christ, you've been born again you, you didn't just make this like purpose statement, uh, you know, you didn't just make this profession of faith. If you've been born again, an, a, an entire change has been wrought in your heart. Christ dwells in you with all the power and the resources of heaven and, uh, and on earth. And so when we say, I, wanna, I want to experience more love, Jesus is in you working to bring those things to fruition, when you say, I want to love my enemies, Jesus who loved his enemies is in you conforming you to his image. This is the best act of freedom you could possibly taste. You're not just trying to modify your own behavior. You are being changed from the inside out by Christ who dwells inside of you. And so, I'd, I don't know. I just want to meditate on that line this morning. What is mine? What is yours in Christ Jesus? Paul, for example, says humility and generosity and love are yours in Christ Jesus. Yeah. What else is yours in Christ Jesus? Some of you are like, the Ferrari. you know. <laughs> Lord. I'm <laughs> well, missing the point, right? If we want to do justice to this line, if I can rephrase it in a different way. As we, as we sing this morning, just begin meditating on this line, what is mine in Christ Jesus? Another way of putting this is, what do I see in Jesus that I don't have, that I find alluring about him? Maybe you're like, I have a hot temper. I get mad really easy. Jesus never seems to get mad. Gosh, that's so amazing. Amazing that's yours in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're like, I I struggle with lust. Jesus seemed to have a pure mind and pure thoughts. I don't have that, but I see in him something that is attractive and alluring. I want that. Maybe some of you are like, I don't do relationships well, but Jesus seemed to do relationships perfectly. Maybe some of you are like, you see in him an act. Maybe you're like, gosh, Jesus loved the poor and the broken. I, I bristle whenever a homeless person walks by my path. I see in Jesus something alluring and attractive that I don't have, that I, I, I want. Maybe you see in him an image that you don't have, that, that is desirable to you. Maybe you see just a kind-hearted person. Beautiful, wonderful towards with compassion. Maybe it's a characteristic. Begin asking yourself this question as we sing. What do I see in Jesus that I don't have that I find alluring? Because Paul says, it is yours in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 38, I love this little, this story. Jesus is, is, is choosing his disciples and a couple fishermen see Jesus and they start like following him. They're like, you know, they're just like creeping behind him, like following the rabbi and he, He turns around and he looks at him and in verse uh, 38 he says what do you want Jesus says this a lot in different ways he says to disciples what do you want what do you desire and the response in John chapter 1 is where are you going where are you living where are you staying and his his reply to their request their desires come and see if you want to wherever you're at in life i'm just going to ask the worship team to come up ask the question what is it that i desire and do not have that i see in christ as alluring and attractive Because Jesus seems to ask people that same thing. What do you desire? Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe it's worry and anxiety. But you see in Christ something more. Ask, be honest with yourself. What is it that I desire that I see in Christ? And just be honest with Him and bring it before Him. But but be ready for his response to you. Come and see. Come with me and walk with me and see what a life with Jesus is going to do to that deep desire. I think for many of you, whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you're just starting or you're not starting at all, the journey through those two questions with Jesus might be one of the best things you've ever done in your life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence among us as you promised. Now may the whisperings of your spirit be loud and clear as we offer to you our hearts and our desires, our fears and our worries, our questions, our curiosities, our disappointments and our failures. may you do with them whatever you wish for you are that good rabbi the good teacher but also lord and savior and king there's nobody like you and nobody knows what the good life is better than you do may many men and women young and old in this room have a reinvigorated vision following you, no matter what it looks like, because we trust that you are the best thing that's ever happened to us. We pray that your spirit would interact with us now in attitudes of worship as you heal our hearts and recalibrate our souls to the wonders of the kingdom of God.